familiar to some of you, but are not familiar to me, and I thoroughly enjoy them. Um, I also had another experience, and this does relate to what I want to speak about. And Phil picked us up at the airport, and he's been driving us about in this car that he's hired, and it's a hybrid. I've never been in a hybrid car before, and so this was a new experience. But it got me to thinking, and with other things that we've been talking about, this little idea of, of hybrid. And we're going to look into 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the first part of the chapter, because I want to speak to you about something that is particularly relevant today in relation to morality, and it is the sustained satanic assault upon gender. And there is, throughout our world, a sustained attack on gender that gender distinctions would be eradicated. Now, I know that is true here. It certainly is true in the United Kingdom, where I come from. And it's an issue that we face as believers, that we face and live in a world that is seeking to eradicate these distinctions that God has created. Now, this is not a new issue, but it certainly seems to be um, a sustained attack at this present time. And what men are seeking to do is to create a hybrid a person who is neither known as a man nor as a woman, but something different. Or a man that is going to appear and act as a woman or vice versa. And these are all issues that are current, I think, and issues that we need to face as believers and find the biblical answer to. Now let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and we'll read the first 15 verses to seek to deal with us. Verse number one, Be ye followers of me, even as I am also of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head, but every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoureth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought, to, ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judging yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man of long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman of long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Now God will bless his word to us as we seek to bring an exposition of these verses to bear. Now, if you're going to summarize um, this section of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, let me summarize it 
in a sentence. And it is this, that head covering in a local church is an important symbol in a chapter full of important symbols. If you enjoy the symbolism of the second part of the chapter, then you must also face the symbolism in the first part of the chapter. You cannot have one without the other. Now, we want to just go down the verses and see how this unfolds and see the structure and see the teaching of what is brought to bear. So in verse number 2, as this section starts, he says this, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things. So he's bringing a note of praise to these Corinthian believers. And he's able to do that in relation to the issue at the beginning of the chapter, but sadly he will not be able to do that in relation to the issue of the Lord's Supper in the second part of the chapter. He has to bring a corrective ministry as to their conduct in the second part of the chapter, but he needs to bring bring an explanatory ministry in the first part of the chapter. You see, their practice was correct in relation to headship, but they did not have the knowledge to have a spiritual appreciation of what they were doing. So he wants to bring that to them so that they understand the significance and they can do it intentionally and worshipfully and with a full understanding of what they're doing. Now, sadly, in the second part of the chapter, he says in verse 17, Now, in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not. Because their conduct was not correct in the second part of the chapter in relation to the Lord's Supper, so he cannot praise them. He has to correct them. So he says, I praise you. Now note verse one, verse 2. He's going to give two reasons why in the first section of the chapter he can praise them. He says, and if you keep your eye on the text, as we go down the verses it will be helpful. He says in verse number 2, Firstly, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things. That's the first thing. Secondly, and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. So the first reason for the praise is that they had not forgotten the Apostle Paul. They appreciated him, and he appreciated that they had not rejected him nor his doctrine. There were some assemblies that were rejecting him, and at the end of his life, he would have to conclude that all the of Asia be turned away. But he says here, I praise you that you remember me. For to reject the Apostle Paul was to reject the Apostle Paul's teaching. You couldn't separate the two. Secondly, he says, I want to praise you that you keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. Now that word ordinances, perhaps in another translation from the authorized, you might have the word traditions. Now there are 13 occurrences of that word in the New Testament, and I'm not going to go through them all, but if you search them, you'll discover this that in Mark chapter 15 and verse number 3, the Pharisees are asking the Lord Jesus why his disciples did not follow the tradition of the elders. There's the word. So you have the tradition of the elders, Mark 15. In Mark chapter 7 and verse 3, this section refers to the Pharisees washing before eating. Tradition. Now in each of the remaining six occasions when the word occurs. The Lord Jesus is condemning Jewish tradition. So if you do your sums, you've got six there, you've got Mark 7 is 8, and you've got Matthew 15, sorry, which is 9. 
You then go to Galatians chapter 1 and 14, and Paul is mentioning his ancestral traditions. You read Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, and he speaks about the traditions of men. Now, what I want to suggest to you strongly is that the use of the word here in this chapter is distinct from those usages. He's not speaking about the traditions of men. He's not speaking about ancestral customs. He's not speaking about the traditions of the elders. But rather, there are three occasions in Scripture when the word tradition or ordinances speak of apostolic teaching. And this is one of them. The other two are found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15. For example, he says in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast, hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or by epistle, whether by apostolic oral ministry or apostolic written ministry. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us, not after the apostolic teaching. So here he is speaking, I judge, in the same way, and he says, I want to praise you because you have been observing, you have been practicing, you have been keeping the apostolic teaching that you have received. But then he says this, keeping it is not enough. This is not uninformed obedience that God is expecting. This is not adherence without thought and understanding and appreciation and intentionality in our practice. You don't just do things because you're told to do them. Scripture wants to take us beyond that, that we understand why. And that there is an aspect of our intentionality in relation to our practice. So he says, I want you to understand. Look at verse 3. He says, I would have you know. So here's something that they have to know. And in verse number 3, he's going to state what I call a universal principle. So you have in verse 3, the principle. The rest of the chapter is related to this principle. The rest of the chapter is all about this principle. We need to get the principle right so that we can see the practice as an illustration and symbolism of this principle. You see, it's not all about head covering in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's all about headship. It's all about headship. So let us look at this then. He says, I would have you know. He says that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Now I'm going to tax you. This is the third speaker in the session, but I'm going to tax you. And I'm going to ask you just to look carefully at these verses. Because as you look carefully at these verses, I want to suggest to you that the word head has two usages, and you've got to get them right. I've quoted Jack Hunter for some reason. I'm going to quote him again. He used to say that you have to read the verse, you have to read it carefully, then you have to read it more carefully. And there's a great deal of truth in that. 
So if you have the authorised version, and here is where the authorised version is helpful for study, particularly, if you look at verse number 4 and 5, you'll discover this, that there are occasions where the word head is preceded by a word in italics. Can you see that? If you have an authorised text, you'll see that in there. So it reads, every man praying or prophesying, having, there's the word in italics, his, his head, his head. And then it goes on and says this, his head covered, dishonoreth, and there's the words his head again, but it's not in italics this time. You see, it's different. And there's a difference when you see the word head preceded by the word his or her in italics, and when you don't. You see, on occasions, and I'll point them out as we go through, the word head refers to your literal cranium, that thing up here, your head. It refers to that, literally. And there are other occasions in this section where it refers to the head symbolically. Symbolically. Now, what do I mean by that? When it refers to the word head symbolically, it is signifying authority and administration. You speak about the head of government. You mean that the government's authority and administration is centered in that one individual. They are the head of the government. We speak about uh, the queen um, in those ways in our uh, nation and you perhaps speak about the president in that way in, in your nation. But in the Bible, for example, there are instances in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse number 8, it says this, the head of Syria is Damascus. Now that's obviously not a literal head. It's using the word symbolically. The center of authority and administration in the land of Syria was Damascus. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 10, Ye are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power. He is the supreme authority and from whom all administration comes in relation to all principality and power. So you have a literal head and you have a symbolic head. Two usages of the same word within a short context. Now, the reason for stating that is that when you come to this, you see in this universal principle, the principle of God's order and administration of his creation. And what we do with our literal heads when we come together is symbolic of what is true of God's order and administration. That is what we are symbolizing. Now, God has order in his creation. Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. There is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Now, you might find that difficult to swallow um, in your present current political situation, and we might be the same, but that is irrelevant. The fact of the matter is just this, that God is a God of order, and that government is of God, and there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. He is a God who seeks that his creation be ordered and structured, and that there be administration. So too, within the family, for example, Ephesians 5, 22 and verse 23, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. So there is order within that relationship as well. Now let us come to this 
universal principle, a principle of headship, of order. The head of every man is Christ. Now, it is true that Christ is the head of the church, but that's not what it says here. It says the head of every man is Christ. He is the head of the church, and many verses teach that, but here he is also the ruler, the supreme authority in relation to every single person of every man. Matthew 28, verse 18, All power, all authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. One day that will be acknowledged by all mankind. In Philippians 2, verses 10 to 11, Every knee will bow and acknowledge what is true. He is the supreme authority. He is the head of every man. He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so, although many do not accept it, many reject it, many rebel against it, and today it is only those who are believers in the Lord Jesus who willingly submit to his authority and reign, nevertheless, the head of every man is Christ. And in a coming day, those who are rebellious and resistant to that will bow the knee. But then he says this, that the head of the woman is the man. So that in this order, this universal principle of headship and administration that God has brought about within his creation, man has authority over woman. Now, the man must recognize that that is God-given and has accountability and responsibility inherent to it. But the principle is there. And the woman must realize that in relationship with the man, she has been given the place of submission. Now, you can see, if you take your time to study Genesis chapter 3, what happens when that is not adhered to. Where is Adam when Satan comes to speak to Eve? He is either missing or he is silent. But there's there's an abdication of responsibility by the man in the garden. And the woman takes the place that the man should have, and it's a disaster. You see, this principle is not being practiced. The head of the woman is the man. But then it goes on and says this, the head of Christ is God. Now, that kind of throws a spanner into the works of your resisting the second, set, the second statement. You know, it may well be you're sitting here and you're kind of irritated by even the mention of that. And it may be that you hate the idea that man is the head of, of the woman. But, you know, when you come to this, the head of Christ is God. And speaking reverently, Christ loves that truth. Loves it. He's willingly submissive to that. This is the authority of love. God who loves the Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Christ who is submissive to the Father as an obedient Son. Not inferior to the Father in any way. In fact, he would say, I and the Father are one. It's not a matter of superiority or inferiority. But it is a matter of headship. It's a matter of order. It's a matter of administration. Now, if you want to deny the middle one, you'll need to deny the first and last one. For they're all connected. There is the universal principle. Now, that principle has been rejected by society for some time. For some time. 
Now then, let us notice as we come down into verse 4, the necessary symbolic display of that amongst God's people. So this principle is going to be displayed, and I'm suggesting to you, when the saints gather in this context. He says, every man who is praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Now, books have been written about this praying and prophesying business, and debates have been had. My view is, and you may have another, that this is a general description of what took place when the saints gathered at that time. That's okay, making the statement, but you really need justification of that statement, of course. Well, when you go to chapter 14 and verse number 4, it says this, that he that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. And as prophesying is expounded in chapter 14 and explained, it's evident by this and other texts within the chapter that it was an activity which was carried out when the saints gathered. It was for the benefit of the gathered company. And I judge that the praying and It's a kind of awkward thing putting this on in front of people. There we go. So every man who prays and prophesies, and I'm suggesting that is when the assembly gathers. God's people are gathered. And so when he says this, he is saying, and he deals interestingly with the the brethren, the men first. For the biggest issue in the day of Corinth, and Corinth's day was not the women, but the men. Now, that's changed, but that was true then. And he deals with the most difficult issue first. You see, men, especially with a Jewish background, were used to coming into God's presence with their head covered. They still do. But now they're being told to uncover their head. And that would have been a very unfamiliar and uncomfortable experience. So he says to the men, if you pray and you prophesy and you have your physical head covered. So his head is covered. It is not to be covered. It is not to be concealed. Because to do so dishonors his symbolic head. Now, who is his symbolic head? You go to the verse before verse number 3, the universal principle. You search for the answer within that verse. There it is. The head of every man is Christ. It's in the verse. Don't need to explain it. So by me as a brother, when the saints gather for spiritual activity, such as praying and the declaration of God's truth, prophesying, And I conceal my head, I cover my head, I dishonor that which my head symbolizes. And in verse 3, that's the person of Christ. So I can't do that. I must uncover my head. Failure to do so, that word dishonor means bring down disgrace on Christ. Then, 
If you go to verse number 5, we then have him dealing with the sisters. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. Now, can I suggest to you that he is not concerned in context with the issue of whether her participation is audible or silent. It's not the issue. The brethren audibly will be praying, audibly will be prophesying, but they will not all be audibly praying. They will not all be audibly prophesying. They will be being led in those things. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 6 teaches us that. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say, Amen, at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say. You see, when someone is praying, when someone is prophesying, then the company are engaged with that activity, and it is not just one person who is praying or prophesying, but the whole company as being led by the brother. Whether men or women in the company, all engaged, all active, all spiritually active in this process, and that's what he's dealing with. He will later on explain who is to be audible and who is to be silent as the company is participating in these spiritual activities. And you get to that in chapter 14. But he says, if a sister is engaged in those activities with her head uncovered. She dishonors her head. Now, here's the converse. The woman's head, literal head, is uncovered. It brings down disgrace on man because symbolically she is giving man the place that Christ ought to have. Now then, he goes on and says this. Here is the significance of of such an action. For, in verse 5. So here's the, the important connecting words. For. That is even all one as if she were shaven. So he's going to direct it to something that they knew about that was obvious and was very visible. They could identify with it as something that would be abhorrent to them. Not normal. Not acceptable even to them. And he's saying, if you practice this and you are having your head uncovered, it is just like this. Something you would never do. Something that would be unacceptable to you. Well, that is unacceptable to God. That's the flow of argument. So he says this, that if she's going to take the place of men in respect to the symbolism of headship, it's the equivalent to taking the place of men in respect to her appearance. That's how it's seen by God. For in verse number 6, there is the word for again. So if you seek to explain what that word shaven means without going to verse 6, you're missing out on Paul's explanation of what the word means. So we're into another explanation. What does that mean? It was as if she were shaven. Well, verse 6, For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. So he said, here's something that would be shameful 
to you as a woman. And that is true, normally. It's a truism, which is still effective today. Scripture is saying that no self-respecting woman would want to cut off all her hair. Not in the natural realm. Some of you sisters have had the very painful experience of losing your hair through medical treatment. You know how distressing that is for you as a woman. If you see pictures of what happened to French women who collaborated with the Nazis during Second World War, one of the things that happened to them when they were taken after the Germans were defeated and their own countrymen wanted to punish them, their heads were shaved. That's what they did to them. You can see pictures of it. And they shaved their heads to shame them. It was seen in society as a shameful thing. Paul actually says, look at that, think about that. Now, if you feel that way about that, this is how God views a sister with an uncovered head when the assembly gathers and spiritual activity is engaged in. Verse number seven. Now he's going to give further explanation. For a man indeed, ought not to cover his head. Now, just in case the brethren were sitting there feeling all very smug and as if they've had their kind of teaching in relation to this, he comes back to the men. And he said, let me speak to you again about uncovering your head. Now, again, let me emphasize this. In our culture, in our day, the issue now has been dominated by uh, women and the covering of their heads But in Paul's day, could I assure you, the issue was with the men. Culture has changed. But you think about a man who all his life had associated the worship of God with covering his head. And now he's being told, no, you must uncover your head. Now, I want to come to this because this is really where it begins to speak about gender. Now, if I don't get much past this, that'll be okay. A man indeed ought not to cover his head. Why? For as much, here's the explanation, as he is two things, the image and glory of God. Now, when he speaks about the women, you'll notice it's different. He says, but the woman is the glory of the man, not the image of God. Now, what is this? When we come to think about this expression, the image of God, I want to suggest to you the following. The Lord Jesus was the greatest man who ever lived on earth. That word image is used of him. Hebrews 1 verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Now, although lesser than Christ in so many ways that we are, It is interesting that man is still described as the image and glory of God. Now, Paul doesn't expound these phrases, by the way. He just mentions them and moves on. There's an expectation that no explanation is necessary to Paul's readership. I think there is to us. 
You see, Paul uses, now here's my grammar. Now, I don't know, I'm not very good with English grammar, never mind Greek grammar, but you know, as you study the Bible, the, the grammar is important. I usually say to the younger folk back home, it is a pity that God didn't communicate us, to us in pictures. That would have been easy. He communicated to us in words. Words made into sentences and language. So in order to understand God's communication, we must understand language. So Paul uses a present active participle here. And it means just this. He, he says that man is the image. Not was. Not before the fall. He says man is the image of God. Genesis 1 verse 26 and verse 27, God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Now this was the culmination of creation. This was the high point, if you like. Only man in God's creation was stated as being in the image of God. Only man was given dominion over all the earth. Only man is explicitly stated as being created male and female. Interesting. And man is a whole person, both physically and spiritually, is in some sense like his maker. Now Paul's going to draw a contrast between men and women even in this verse. Let me introduce you to a concept that you may not have thought about. Now you may have, excuse me if you have, but you may not have. And this is also under serious attack in our day. God is masculine. God's, and excuse the awkwardness of the word, genderness, excuse that word, it's a clumsy word, but it does not spring just from the pronouns that the Bible uses. The Bible overwhelms us with masculine models and images, offices and roles of God. Now, most of these are drawn from family or government or from military metaphors. God is the father, not the mother. God is the son, not the daughter. God is the firstborn among many brethren, not sisters. God is the kinsman redeemer, male. He is the husband of Israel. He is the bridegroom betrothed to his bride, the church. So we could go on. Masculinity. Outside family relations, God assumes offices and roles which invariably are masculine in character. God is a warrior. He is the Lord of armies, Psalm 24. He teaches King David's hands to war. He's a king. He's the king of kings. He's a judge. He's an enforcer of righteousness, a punisher of the wicked. He's a priest. He's a great high priest. So we could go on, all masculine. And that is before the incarnation. That's before God was manifest in flesh. Now let me say this, and it doesn't even sound right saying it, but I want to say it. God is not our mother. He is our father. Now a local congregation of Christians, I judge in Second John, could be seen as our mother. The New Jerusalem in Galatians 4.26. But not God. Not God. Now, something else to think about. My time is running out. Masculinity is not the same as maleness. 
God was masculine and eternally so before incarnation. Male signifies biological gender. Maleness arises from concrete, tangible, biological and physiological characteristics. That's something the world wants to reject. The Bible teaches it. Masculinity is a concept which encompasses all of that and is seen demonstrated in all of that. But God is and always has been masculine before ever he became a man. There is a distinction between masculinity and femininity in the Bible. The Lord Jesus was a man, is a man, and in his manhood, he manifested his masculinity. His roles, his manners, his customs were all conventionally and unambiguously masculine, not feminine. Had they been otherwise, the scribes and Pharisees would surely have taken note of any ambiguity in his character or conduct and they would have criticised him for it. I mean, after all, they slander him as a demon possessor, as a lawbreaker, a glutton, a drunkard, a carouser, a blasphemer. But never do we read that Jesus' enemies accused him of lacking masculinity. They didn't. Interestingly, masculinity is also ascribed to angels. Consistently spoken of as masculine. Designated as what? The sons of God. Never called the daughters of God or so on. Listen, when God created man, he created him with masculinity. In the image of God. And this world is trying to pervert and change that. Men are masculine. Not feminine. When it comes to women, then it's interesting that it is not said of women, that thing. Because women are not masculine. They were not created with masculinity, but rather femininity. Which, I won't get to it, is gloriously displayed externally in the long hair at the end of the chapter. The enhancement of the femininity of a woman, the glory. Man was created in the image and likeness of God, and here, when you come to chapter 11, it's important in relation to the distinction between genders that ought to be displayed symbolically when the saints gather, that we understand that there's a difference, not just biologically. So that if you change the biological formation of your body, you're not essentially changing the person. The person is still born masculine, even although alterations may be made to the human form. That's such an important lesson for us to know from the Bible. Man is made in this way. He is the image 
presently and glory of God. For the woman is the glory of the man. You say, what does that mean? Well, of course, if you're following the idea, then you would need to go to the next verse, for the word for takes us into the next verse. And I might need to finish. Let me just touch this and give you a little kind of outline of it. When you come to verse number 7 into verse number 8, then we discover this, that there's an explanation of the relationship of a woman to a man and a man to a woman and the equality that exists and the interdependence of a man and a woman. Let me just point it out, please, and just give me a minute or two to do so. He says in verse number 8, The man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Now, in the beginning, woman was formed from man. We understand that in the book of Genesis. So the man did not come from the woman, but originally the woman came from the man. It's the old story about spare ribs, and it comes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 21 to verse 23. But then in verse 9, he develops it and says this, Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Now, in the beginning, woman was formed, and in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, the Lord God said, this is New American Version, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And God looked and said, before sin came into the world, there was something that could be better. Man could serve God better if he had a help suitable for him, so he made him one. Put him to sleep, took the rib out, and from the rib created a woman. Verse number 10. For this cause, verses 8 and 9, for this cause, creative explanation, the creation, or the woman to have power on her head, that is a symbol of authority, the head covering. For this cause. To acknowledge the creation, the order of creation, for this cause. Because of the angels. Now we can have a Bible reading there. You might think the angels look down and observe and are educated by what they see in relation to heads covered and uncovered, and that may well be true. But it may also be true that we have to learn from them as opposed to them learn from us. For you remember that the angels who fell, what did they seek to do? Usurp God's creative order. And they sought to be as God. Let us learn the lesson of what happened to the angels when God's order was disturbed. Chaos. Verse 11 is the balancing statement. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman nor the woman without the man in the Lord. You see, when you come into Christian relationship, relationship with Christ, I should say, and own the Lordship of Christ, then any feelings of superiority or any feelings of being, uh, being able to denigrate women or anything like that disappear. And where the Lordship of Christ is acknowledged, then men and women are respected 
equally. Why? Because the man cannot be without the woman, neither the woman without the man. And there is an explanation for that in verse 12. Because although in the beginning woman was taken from man in creation, in procreation man has been taken from woman ever since. Now I have to stop there. And then he'll go on to speak about that obvious lesson of nature. He says, look, even if you don't get that, he says, just look to what you can see readily all around you. The, the obvious distinction in gender that is displayed with the short hair of the men and the longer hair of the women. You don't need much explanation about that. It's very unmasculine for a man to have long hair. That's what he's saying. And it's an enhancement of a woman's femininity and a display of it. It's her glory. It's a display of her womanhood for her to have long hair. That's a lesson that's so obvious all around us. Gender distinction in appearance. And he speaks about the hair of the man and the woman. Then in verse 16 he finishes. And he says, and I think anticipating generations of debate and dispute, he says, if any man seemed to be contentious. Look, he's saying, put it in our language, if you've got a real problem with this, he says, we have no such custom. You say, well, this is just Corinthian truth. It's got nothing to do with today or any other assembly. And he says, no. He says, we have no such custom. Neither do any of the churches of God. This is a commonly practiced ordinance for the reasons stated. Listen, in the day when gender distinctions are under terrible attack, there should be no gathering of people on earth that display the distinction more biblically than when the Lord's people gather. It should be evident the difference between the masculinity of the male and the femininity of the female displayed biblically in the uncovered head of the male and the covered head of the female. And that is a striking testimony to God's order and administration. Trust that God will bless his word to us. Thank you.